Good morning, Fellowship family. It's good to be back with you again this week. I hope that you're having a wonderful Lord's Day. And also, I'd like to wish you a happy Mother's Day. I hope that you've had a chance today to, uh, uh, to celebrate the gift of, of your mom to, to your family. And I, I, I trust that it's been, been a, a blessing for you already today. I was reminded as I was preparing about a, a little boy who was in a church play. And he had a, a line that he had to memorize and say in the church play. He was very nervous. And uh, he was afraid that he was going to stumble over the line or forget it. And so his mom agreed to sit near the front to help him out. And sure enough, when it was just his moment to say his line, he froze. And he, his mind went blank and he forgot what he was supposed to say. And so he looked down at his mom and, and she, she, uh, she made a few gestures and she, she mouthed the words of the line to him. And he just couldn't quite figure it out. And so, so she finally whispered it by saying, I am the light of the world. And immediately a relief, a look of relief came across his face as he realized what he was supposed to say. And he looked out over the crowd and he said, my mother is the light of the world. Uh, to which obviously many people there snickered and, and chuckled as he, uh, as he said it that way. But as we, as we think about those words, there really is truth in that. We know that, that God has blessed us with, with moms who indeed reflect his light among us. And we saw last week in the Sermon on the Mount that followers of Christ are called the light of the world, the salt of the earth, that we are uh, to, to reflect him at work within us. We are to uh, reflect a, an influence that preserves the world. And so again, I, I invite your attention back to this uh, wonderful sermon preached from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ, recorded for us and Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and we pick back up uh, this week in verse 17. Well, as you're turning there, let me uh, remind you that, uh, that the Sermon on the Mount has a theme, and it gives us practical instruction for daily life. It is life in God's kingdom. And as we'll see today, this isn't uh, life that is just about external compliance. In the kingdom of Jesus, it goes all the way to the heart. It goes down to the, to the heart of the matter. And so the kingdom of heaven, of course, is, uh, is an important theme in all of Matthew's gospel. But life in the kingdom is the theme of the Sermon on the Mount. And we will see just how specific and how practical it gets as we continue to walk through it together. If you were here uh, with us a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount... We noted that in verses 3 and 10, uh, the, the theme of the kingdom of heaven is mentioned. In fact, we, we uh, uh, saw that it was a literary device called an inclusio, which brackets a passage of Scripture. And uh, we see that in, in verses 3 and 10 of chapter 5. But there's another inclusio that uh, is found in chapter 5, verse 17. And uh, it's referencing the law and the prophets. We'll look at it together. It says, don't think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Let's stop right there and turn over to chapter 7. And if you look down to verse 12, you'll notice those, that same phrase. It says, therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. So again, we see that same phrase on, on, uh, uh, back in chapter 5 as well as seeing it again in chapter 7, and it brackets the body of the sermon. 
So really we can see the, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount being the first 16 verses of chapter 5. And then we can see the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount picking up in chapter 7, verse 13. And from that point to the end of chapter 7, we see an invitation to the kingdom, the, the, two, the two roads, the two ways, and uh, the decision for people to, uh, to then enter whether or not they will enter the kingdom. So this middle part is the body of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's exactly where we are going to be uh, spending our time over the next several Lord's Days uh, as, we, uh, as we gather around this passage of Scripture. Again, let's look at Matthew chapter 5. And this time, let's read verse 17 all the way to verse 20. It says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets, I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So we, we pick back up in, in these three verses and, and the first point on our outline this morning. I hope that you've, you've pulled that up online, the sermon outline that's prepared for you. The first point is this, Jesus fulfilled the law. It pointed to him. And that is referencing verse 17 where Jesus says, Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. And when we think about how Jesus fulfilled the law, we might think of it from a couple of different perspectives. Uh, the first one is, of course, that, that he fulfilled it in his life. He fulfilled the prophecies that were given about him. Uh, he fulfilled the righteousness of God by, by, by living a sinless life. Uh, we see the fulfillment that is there. But we can also see this, this idea of the, the, uh, uh, the, the law and the prophets as speaking of the Old Testament in its entirety. And that Jesus is saying, this Old Testament points to me. I am the one who is fulfilling uh, what, is, what is described in the Old Testament. And so he's saying, I'm the center of the Old Testament. I'm the center of the scriptures. I am the fulfillment because I am the theme I am what the authors were writing about, and I'm the one that they were predicting. In fact, Jesus would say to the leaders of his day in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. Now, what were the scriptures in that day? It was the law and the prophets. It was the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. That is what they had as their Bible at the time. And Jesus made this bold statement, even speaking to the religious leaders and saying, those words testify about me. He goes on a few verses later in John chapter 5, verse 46. He says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. Even the law of Moses pointing to the Messiah, pointing to Jesus Christ who would ultimately fulfill the law. 
Luke chapter 24 uh, is a a chapter that records a a time after the resurrection of Jesus where he is walking on the road to Emmaus with a couple of his disciples. And it says in verse 27 of Luke 24, Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So here we are back on this, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, and Jesus is referencing the law and the prophets. So what do we, do we see here when he says he has not abolished the law and the prophets, but he has fulfilled it? He's, he's really saying, I am the theme. He's saying, I didn't come to destroy it. I'm the subject of it. I'm the fulfillment of it. And so I think it's important for us just to, to stop and, and, and look not only at this verse, but to think, really, Jesus is the theme of the Bible. He is the, the, the grand overarching theme that, that he would come on a rescue mission to save you and me. So from, from Genesis to Revelation, it's about him. It's about God pursuing us through his son, Jesus, bringing us to a relationship with him, that we may know God, that we would see his ancient promise of a rescuer, a redeemer being fulfilled. Now, we might make an observation as we look at verse 17 and say, well, if Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, why, why don't we still have some of these sacrificial laws in place or dietary laws in place or the, the ceremonial type statutes that we read about in the Old Testament? And I would say the answer to that could be, could be seen in the way that we view the Old Testament law in three categories. We see it as the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. Now, the civil law of the Old Testament would have been given to provide safety and security uh, for, the, for the nation of Israel. It was uh, the, the, the law that, that, that protected God's people. Uh, but today, God's people is, is more than, than one nation. We are a people out of every tribe and tongue and nation. And so no longer is there a, uh, a, a, a civil law that's been given to one nation. We also look at the ceremonial or the sacrificial law. And we see that it, of course, pointed to a sacrifice. It, uh, it pointed to the, the Lamb of God who, according to Hebrews chapter 9, would be Jesus Christ who died once for all. You may remember that, that uh, on the cross as he died, right before he died, he said, it is finished. He had completed uh, the, the sacrificial work that he had been called to do. He had he had completed what was required and thereby rendering these Old Testament ceremonies and sacrifices obsolete. And so all of this leaves us with just the moral law. And these are the ones uh, really that Jesus emphasizes in the Sermon on the Mount. As we're going to see in coming weeks, uh, this is a, a sermon that deals with things like anger, uh, sexual boundaries within marriage, telling the truth, these kinds of things that deal with the moral law. And the, this moral law has not changed. These are timeless truths. But as we already know, we are unable to keep God's law perfectly. And that leads us to the second point. If you look in your outline, it says this, point two, the law shows our need for Jesus. It leads us 
to him. The law leads us to Christ. Let's look again at Matthew 5, verse 18. It says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. And so we see and, and can make two observations quickly from this verse. And, and one of them is that the timeless nature of God's law, that it, that it is not passing away, and that it also has something that it is to accomplish. And we're going to see that in light of some, some other verses that help us understand what exactly does the law accomplish. Well, it helps us to, to understand what sin is. It helps us see our need for Christ to come into our lives as that Messiah, that rescuer, that redeemer. And so we will continue looking at that in this second point to see our need for Jesus. When God called the universe into order, he established the moral law based upon his character and his nature. And we know that one of the attributes of God is that, that he does not change. He is immutable. And so if the, the moral law was based upon his nature, we would know that, that that law also does not change. It is a timeless law. Just think about it. There'll never be a time that it's going to be okay to worship something or someone other than the one true God. There'll never be a time that, that God changes the rules about, about lying or about murder or about adultery, sexual uh, sin, these kinds of things. That This is all based upon the, the, the fact that, that God is true, that God is pure, that God has these characteristics that, that he has put forth within his moral law, a law that's based upon his character. That's why it says in verse 18 that, that the law won't disappear. It doesn't change even in the slightest way, not even by a letter, as it says there in verse 18, because it is an absolute standard. Now, those of us that believe that, that God's word is absolute and that it's timeless, uh, we, we know that, 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 that really throughout every generation there are examples of those who, who go against this. In fact, there, there is a, a word called antinomianism, which means the, the rejection of the law. Anti, uh, meaning against, and nomos, uh, uh, the Greek word for, for law, against the law. And, and, and we can see that back in the days of Jesus, through the days of Paul, uh, even, even to today, this idea of cultural relativism, that, that there is no absolute truth, that there's this, this push against something to, to be uh, given as a law or a rule. Maybe you remember uh, over the, the winter months, we studied the book of Ruth, and we saw that Ruth and Naomi uh, and Boaz, they, they lived in a period of time known as the time of the judges. Uh, there was not a king uh, during that time, but there were judges appointed to, uh, to give order and to, uh, uh, to re uh, rule over uh, the nation of Israel. And it says in Judges chapter 21, verse 25, that there was an attitude in ancient Israel described as as this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you, you think back to that ancient time that would have been back even before King David, all the way to where we are today, and we see 
that there is that pushback to that desire to, to not be under the authority of God or under the rule of God, but instead to do things that are right in one's own eyes. As I said, even today, cultural relativism is a, is a slippery slope, and you can, you can even see how that, that idea of going against the law or going against God's law has been around from generation to generation. So I just want to stop, and I, I want to point that out particularly to the young people that are around us, that are, that are part of, of this today, to, to think about how we can see absolute truth in God's Word and yet look around the world and, and see how, how principles of God's Word are called into question, or at times even mocked. And it's, it's really an example of what we see here in Scripture of people pushing against the rule of God, the law of God, and yet Jesus is saying in this verse that it is timeless. And it's timeless for a reason. It has something that it is going to accomplish. But for just a minute, I want us to, to, to think about that contrast, that contrast that we see about the, with the, the human thinking of the world contrasted against the timeless nature of God's absolute truth. And I want you, if you, if you are with other people this morning in a, in a group setting, take, take a look at the discussion question that's in your outline. And it says, give an example of a principle in God's Word that is timeless, yet questioned in society today. So if you're by yourself, you could reflect on that. If you're with a group, come up with an example of something that, uh, that is, that is uh, questioned in society today, but is really timeless in God's Word. Well, I hope that you've been thinking and discussing about the, the, the Word of God being timeless, being uh, something that is profitable for, for each and every generation, including ours, and something that, that we need to hold on to. During the, uh, uh, the, the days of, of, of Christ's earthly ministry, again, He was commending uh, the word to, to those who were, were listening to him. And, and just after his earthly ministry, the Apostle Paul would, would write about the law of God. Uh, even in light of saving faith, he would say in, in Romans chapter 3, he says in verse 31, Do we then nullify the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So Paul is, is coming and he's promoting grace, promoting faith, and yet at the same time saying there, there is a need here for the law. He continues later in the book of Romans to make this case in chapter 7 when he says in verse 7, what should we say then? 
Is the law sin? Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. So we see how the law has a purpose to accomplish something. In fact, it gets even clearer as we move into the book of Galatians. Paul shows this knowledge of the law, this knowledge of sin leads one to Christ. Galatians 3 verse 24. It says, therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So yes, we do see the the gospel that, that is given to us by grace. It's received through faith, not by works. But we see how the law is what helps us to understand our need for grace in the first place. Paul Williams from Dallas Theological Seminary said it this way. He said, the law is the light that reveals how dirty a room is, but the law is not the broom that cleans it up. So the law has a purpose in pointing us to Christ. That's what it has accomplished by helping us to see our need for him. But it is Christ and his work that actually is what saves. It's what forgives. As we wrap up the second point, let me share two approaches that we can see that people take towards God. The first one is an approach of human achievement. And that is the one throughout the world we see people that think that that there is a way that they humanly can can achieve salvation. That they 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 can earn their way into heaven. But then there is another way. And that is the true way, the divine accomplishment that that God has done something on our behalf to offer us heaven. Do you see the difference? One is works-based and the other is grace-based. And we we see the, the, uh, the, the human achievement contrasted with the divine accomplishment. You see, the law helps us to see our need for grace. We see our need to be rescued. It's in the law that we see a need for for what Jesus has accomplished in his life by living a perfect life, dying on the cross, taking the penalty for sin that he didn't commit, and then seeing that that penalty, that payment was accepted as he rose victoriously from the grave. So we see indeed that that the law has a purpose and that it accomplishes something by helping us to see our need for Christ. Well, the third and final point, point takes this to a deeper level. If you look at your outline, the third point is this. Kingdom life is not merely external. It goes to the heart. It's not something that's just outwardly external. It's something that that goes right to the inner motives. And so as we look again at verses 19 and 20, we we see that it it speaks of of, of still holding on to the commands, that we are uh, even to teach them to others. We are to do them. But verse 20 says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that, Of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. And it's at this point that the the people who are hearing Jesus probably have their jaws dropped to the floor. And they say, 
what did he just say? That we, we won't go to the kingdom of heaven unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees? Who could ever do that? Because these were the religious leaders of the day that, that took the law of God and they added to it. And they, 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 they made all these regulations and rules that, that they said were part of God's law. But what they did is they expanded it to a level that it was never intended. Let me give an example. We know that the law said to keep the Sabbath holy. And, uh, and so they took this idea of not working on the Sabbath and then, it then raised the question, well then, what is work? If I need to, to carry something somewhere, uh, at what point does that amount that I'm carrying become work? And so these uh, religious leaders sat down and they came up with, with some ways to describe that. And they said, if, if someone needs to carry food, if it's more than the weight of a dried fig, they can't do it. That's, that's considered work, and they can't do that on the Sabbath. If they need to carry milk, they can carry enough for one swallow of milk. If it's more than that, they can't do it. It's too much. If they need to have ink in order to, to, to write something on a piece of paper, they can carry enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet. So, so it just got really crazy as they thought through the, the different ways in which they would seek to come up with these rules and regulations for the law. They spent time arguing about whether or not they could take an oil lamp from, from one place to another if they needed light in another part of, of the house. Would that be considered work? What about someone who was a, a tailor and made clothes? What if they accidentally had left a needle in some of their clothing? Would that be considered carrying something? Would that be considered work. And uh, another one that I saw that I just I thought was, was, was really ridiculous was the question was raised, if, if someone has false teeth, is it permissible for them to walk out on the Sabbath with false teeth in their mouth? You see, that's, that's the idea of, the, of them just, just nitpicking their way, trying to figure out what is God's law and, and what is acceptable. Well, all of these extra rules were nothing more than legalism. And they were petty rules that were, that were made by people. And so when Jesus said that, that their righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, they were, they were probably ready to give up. Except this was not what God had intended. These kinds of rules were not a fulfillment of the law. These extra burdens were not originally intended. And so Jesus, was when he was saying that their righteousness must exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, he had something altogether different in mind. You see, the scribes and Pharisees were known for outward, external compliance. But Jesus, he was more concerned about the heart. He was more concerned about what was happening on the inside. In fact, he would quote from Isaiah chapter 29 just to, to make that link from the Old Testament into what he was teaching and what he was sharing with the scribes and the Pharisees when he said this in Matthew chapter 15. The latter part of verse 6 says, In this way you have nullified the word of God because of your tradition. Hypocrites. Isaiah prophesied correctly about you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human 
commands. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying they took the law of God and they made all these commands, these burdensome, ridiculous regulations. And all of a sudden, that became the standard of what righteousness was all about. And yet Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is going to display something completely different from external compliance. He's going to go right to the heart of the matter. In fact, he's going to give several examples. Uh, He's going to, as we look in chapter 6, Jesus is going to say, yes, we are to give to the poor. But he doesn't make the contrast between those who give to the poor and those who don't. He makes the contrast between those who give to the poor so that they can be seen by others and those who are giving in secret. He would do the, the, the same when he talks about praying. He's not going to talk and, and give a contrast about people who pray and people who don't pray. No, he's going he's to give an example of, of two people that are praying and one that's praying in a way so that he can be seen. And so that he, can be, that he can be affirmed and applauded by other humans. And then he's going to contrast that with another who is, who is sincerely praying to the Lord. Not in a way to be seen, but just simply to communicate. So, so, so Jesus is not advocating a works-based righteousness. He's not saying, take the, the scorecard that the Pharisees and Sadducees use and, and just try to outscore them at their own game. He's saying they're not doing it the right way. Their heart, their hearts are far from me. Just as in the day of Isaiah, Jesus said this is what they are demonstrating. Again, he's giving his Sermon on the Mount to speak about kingdom life principles. And they are countercultural to the way in which the people of that time were thinking. And so, so he, is, he is setting things all together in a different framework. And he's saying that they need a completely different type of righteousness altogether. And so what we see here really are two different ways. One way is the external compliance of the Pharisees and the scribes. And then there is the the grace-based obedience, which Jesus is speaking of here in the Sermon on the Mount, which we continue to see throughout the New Testament again this is, in, is now including internal thoughts and motives and attitudes. And this is where the, the scribes and the Pharisees would fail. They thought that their religious performance in and of itself would make them acceptable to God. And really what it was all about was, was a works-based righteousness. It was faulty thinking, a faulty misunderstanding of the law itself. And so Jesus, again, is not talking about beating the scribes and Pharisees at their own game. But he's talking about something completely different, something completely different altogether. You see, grace creates a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees because it's inward. It's a heart change. It's a transformation that God does through his spirit on the inside. And that's why when Jesus, in his earthly ministry, would speak to the Pharisees, he was, he was describing them as, as wanting to look clean and good on the outside, but on the inside, uh, it, was, it, was, it was not clean. In fact, uh, he, he saw their pride. He saw their motives. And, and he said in Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now, these are, these are striking words. And what they, what they are doing is, is helping us to see what it is that Christ wants to provide. He wants to provide a heart change, something altogether different, not raising the bar for people to do better and try harder, but to actually redeem, to restore, to give new life, to give that new heart for him. So in Matthew chapter 5, going back to the Sermon on the Mount, verse 20, we see the call that in Christ's kingdom, the righteousness is to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees because it is an inward change. That is why the rest of chapter 5, which we'll begin looking at next Sunday, Lord willing, gets to the heart of true obedience. We're going to see that it's, it's not just about murder. It's deeper. It's really about anger. It's, it's not just about adultery. It goes to the heart of lust. We'll see that it's not just about appearing to tell the truth or appearing to give the right kind of oath. It's about possessing a heart of honesty. Let me just ask you, church family, it's starting to get real now, isn't it? It's starting to get real as we know our own hearts. We know within what, 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 what lurks, what fights against even the truth that is there. It's asking the, the question. It's one thing to say, I won't murder, but what about not getting angry? It begins to expose us a bit. So as we move in to the rest of chapter 5 and work our way through chapter 6 and the weeks ahead, we will see that the ways of Christ's kingdom are a contrast to that external, outward focus of those who simply want to look good. The righteousness demanded by Jesus surpasses anything imagined by the Pharisees because it went to the heart. And Christ's way is more challenging, it's more demanding, but it's also more rewarding because it involves a heart change. It involves being given new life. As we close this morning, I want to share a story with you about uh, a man who served as the mayor of New York City uh, back in the days of the Great Depression, or just after the Great Depression into World War II. His name was Fiorello LaGuardia, uh, the mayor of New York City. And uh, you may have heard of LaGuardia Airport. He's the man that the airport was named after. And he was a, a man who loved his city, and he was loved by his city. Uh, in fact, there's uh, examples of, 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 of kind things that he would do even during this, these difficult days following the Depression and, and during World War II. Uh, there's a, an account that at one time he took an entire orphanage to a baseball game just to provide some entertainment for them. Uh, there was another time that, that, uh, that, that uh, newspapers in New York City were on strike, and so during the time of the strike, he would get on the radio and he, he would read the comics uh, to children so that they could hear them over the radio. A story is told that on a, on a, a cold night in January of 1935, uh, he went to one of the uh, local courts, 
And uh, he decided he would, he would help the judge by processing some of the cases, which he could do as the mayor of the city. And, and so there was a, an elderly lady that was brought before the bench, and, uh, and she was uh, uh, brought before him with a charge of stealing a loaf of bread. And she told Mayor LaGuardia that her daughter was a single mom, that she was sick, that they had completely ran out of food in their apartment, and that her two grandchildren were, were uh, really uh, starving. And so uh, she made her case, and the shopkeeper who was there that was, that was uh, talking about what she had done uh, uh, said that, uh, that he could not uh, drop the charges. He said, you don't understand, Your Honor. Uh, Mayor LaGuardia, this is such a bad neighborhood, and if, if, we, if we don't deal with, uh, with the crime, everyone will come and, and steal from me. She's got to be punished so that other people will learn the lesson as well. And so Mayor LaGuardia sighed, he took a deep breath, and he turned to the woman and he said these words. He said, I've got to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. It's either $10 or 10 days in jail. But even as he pronounced the sentence, the mayor was already reaching into his own pocket. You know what he did? He took out a $10 bill, he threw it into his hat, and, uh, and he said, I'm now remitting this fine. And he said, in addition, I'm going to give a fine to everyone in the courtroom right now of 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. And so he then asked the bailiff to collect the fine of 50 cents from everybody in the, in the courtroom. The story goes that on the following day, the, the newspapers reported that, that the, the bewildered grandmother left the courtroom that night with $47.50, even after she'd been convicted of stealing a loaf of bread to feed her starving grandchildren. The story says that 50 cents was, was collected even from a red-faced grocery store owner as well as 70 petty criminals who were there for their own cases, as well as people with traffic violations, even the New York City policemen who were present, they also had to pay 50 cents apiece. And then after collecting the money, each of them gave the mayor a standing ovation. Well, what a a heartwarming story, right? Well, there's one that's much better than that, one that's much truer than that. And that is that God, the great lawgiver himself, understood our predicament. He knew that we could not live up to the law. We could not live up to the perfection that had been given. That we could not exceed the righteousness even of the scribes and the Pharisees. So what did he do? He paid that penalty for us. He sent his one and only son that, yes, did fulfill the law through a sinless life, but then also took our place and paid the penalty that we deserved. So I ask you, as we, as we wrap up this time together, and we've thought about the law, and we've thought about Christ's kingdom, and we see how the law points us to Christ, do we again see our need for Him? Maybe you've been trying the, the ways of human achievement, or maybe your motives have been for the, the applause of people. Today can be a day to listen, not to my words, but to the words of Christ in his Sermon on the Mount. And come to him with hands empty, but yet knowing that that his hands are full and he's able to give by his grace that which we could never earn or deserve. Let's bow together as we pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, 
We thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. We thank you for what it communicates to us about your kingdom and about how you are calling us to live in this world. We ask, Father, that we would be salt and light, that we would have an influence in this world around us, not for the, not for the, the praise of people, but because you have done a change within us, that it would be a reflection of your work within us to those around us. Lord, I pray that you would, you would give us a desire, a, des, a desire from within to grow in you, to have, to have lives that reflect your righteousness, not because of what we are able to do, but of, of what Christ and, and, and his spirit is able to do through us. Father, I pray for anyone that's watching this morning that, that maybe has been clinging to, to their own abilities, their own righteousness. And yet today, maybe they see that it's only the righteousness of Christ. Father, would you bring your sal- salvation today? And Father, for us as, as your church, people that have been set apart, Lord, may we heed the words of your Sermon on the Mount. May we heed them. May we look to, 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 uh, to our hearts and ask, Lord, for you to do that work within us, that deep work that only you can do, that we can have hearts, again, that reflect your goodness, your grace, and your truth. Father, we thank you that your word is timeless. We pray that you will take it today and apply it to our lives. And above all, may you be glorified. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.